and uh, yesterday we discussed Sir Simon's idea on uh, the nature of decision making and uh, at the same time we did also discuss uh, his ideas on the type of decision making. In that uh, we discussed that uh, Simon has been of the opinion that uh, as far as the day-to-day -day decision making is concerned within the organizational sphere, the decision should be based on rationality. But as far as the nature of rationality is concerned, he has maintained that uh, it would not be based on absolute rationality because uh, he believed that a decision based on absolute rationality will be something undesirable, is uh, not undesirable, rather impossible. So it is not possible to in fact uh, uh, have uh, decisions to the best, most accurate, whether that is something utopian, idealistic. But at the same time, he believed that the decisions within the organization should be based on rationality, logic. Because uh, unless the decisions are based on logic or uh, rationality, the decision may not be right. So within the organization, it should not be based on uh, what you say, anything that is not rational or irrational, emotional. So that is why uh, he believed uh, that the decision should be rational, but it should be rational to the extent it is possible. But when he says, Rational to the extent it is possible, which he defines through his concept of bounded rationality or limited rationality, he did not underemphasize the significance of efficiency. Because he emphasized that the motive, the very motive behind the decision making should be to attain efficiency. But that efficiency need to be understood uh, in the context of bounded rationality because uh, the best idea, because you, you simply the idea is that you should be doing your best, you should be doing a good job as a student in your preparation, you should be in fact uh, uh, preparing uh, in a very nice way, but that very nice way uh, does not mean the best, that very, uh, the very attitude that actually my preparation should be a type of preparation which should be best, but that way things do not actually work out. At the same time we also discussed that uh, according to Simon, there are two types of decision making programmed and non programmed. Uh, the programmed decision making basically are the routine, and the non programmed are new or non routine. And he believed that the programmed and non programmed decisions both are important. And, uh, but again, non programmed decisions carry less rationality. And since it carries less amount of rationality, uh, so in actual practice, uh, the the uh, the, uh, uh, the the decisions, non-programmed decisions, should be taken in a manner or in a way uh, that should have the same amount of rationality as that of the programmed decision. That is what he refers to as the concept: converting non-programmed into programmed decisions. So uh, this is the thing, no? this we have discussed yesterday. So today, uh, let us discuss stages of decision making and uh, some of the other aspects that he has dealt with.
as per Simon, decision making is not an one shot activity. No, decision making in fact is a series of activities. Not according to Simon, decision making is not only one activity. That's what he's saying, it's not an one shot activity. In fact, it is a series of activities. According to Simon, decision making as a process can be divided into four stages. Though in the beginning he actually mentioned three stages, later on he has introduced a fourth stage. But he says decision making as a process involves how many stages? Four stages. Those being These are the three stages. Uh, basically, he divided the decision making process into these three stages to begin with. As I told, later on, he introduced the fourth stage. And that fourth stage is feedback. Intelligence, design, choice, and feedback. Intelligence refers to identification of the problem. Just write down few things and subsequently I will explain. Intelligence refers to identification of the problem and Collection of data and information. Collection of data and information relevant to the problem. The design stage refers to Processing of the information based on which developing alternatives. The processing of information based on which developing alternatives. Evaluation and comparison 
of alternatives and choosing the one or choosing one among the rest give a hyphen the one that is found to be best among the rest feedback no feedback refers to supplementary information supplementary information that lead towards the new decisions or new decisional premises leads towards the new decisional premises Uh, he said that if you take into account decision making because he says uh, in order to understand administration we are not going to study only the decision we are going to study decision making and he says decision making is not a single short activity it's not a one short activity that means it is not merely only one activity rather it is a series of activity put together so what are these series of activities? Yes, try to explain that through these stages. You know, stages of decision making. Those stages, to begin with, he identified three. Later on, he added the fourth one. This being intelligence, design, choice, and feedback. Like let's say, the same simple example that we have been referring, that you have decided to become a civil servant. So here, you have taken a decision. So decision is only a part of the process of decision making. And wherefore it start at the intelligence stage. What is that intelligence stage in this particular context? Maybe your very feeling or a very realization of a problem relating to career, career security, from there this particular decision has started. And see, the realization of a particular problem or the, 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 the knowledge of a particular problem might not be only at the conscious level. It might be at the subconscious or as Simon would say, it might as well be at this unconscious level. So that means, that is a problem we might be accessing, we will be able to know about that problem maybe through our conscious mind or it might be lying at the subconscious or at the unconscious level but only this particular decision lies somewhere in the identification of the problem possibly the problem that what you know, possibly whatever you do the possibility of career stability, career security, career progression see that is the problem and the moment there is a problem again at every stage as Simon would say subconsciously or consciously what we start doing Start collecting information. 
collecting information relating to the career security. And once this information is there, the next is we process. We go through this information, we process this information, and subsequently we start creating alternatives. Alternative means based on the variety of information, based on based on going through this information, we might start developing certain alternatives. Okay, I can be a doctor, I can be an engineer, I can be a lawyer, I can be an accountant, I can be a teacher, I can be a manager, I can be an administrator, etc, etc, etc. So alternatives. So processing this information and creating alternatives or options, that belongs to which stage? Design stage. Do you think all this thing, do you think when you are actually decided finally I have to be a civil servant, you actually went through this process? Okay, whether I should be a doctor, engineer, or all this thing. Few of you might have gone through, few of you might not. Simon would say, all of you have gone through it. When you say, he said, I didn't. Simon would say, you did. But all this thing at a subconscious level. Moment you say, I chose to become a civil servant. Because when there is only one option, you can never choose. <coughs> so subconsciously you rejected what? Many of the other alternative for you as your career option. Maybe consciously you may not have checked out with being an engineer of this type or this engineer of that engineer, this manager of that manager, this doctor or this lawyer. So consciously you may not have done it, consciously you may not have developed it, but very much it has been there at the subconscious or unconscious level. Once these alternatives are created, you tend to actually evaluate and compare it. It tend to start evaluating if I am an engineer, if I am a doctor, if I am a teacher. Not only you start evaluating, but you start comparing with each other and finally you choose the one for you what appears to be the best among the rest. So you go for cost-benefit analysis, the loss and benefit analysis and in that the one who, which you feel the net benefit is actually higher, you choose that as against the rest. So that is what is basically referred to as choice. But see, once you have taken the decision, I want to become a civil servant, that is going to be supplementary information. So maybe the supplementary information might be direct, the supplementary information might be indirect. Direct means you yourself in the due course of time might actually feel okay whether my decision is right or not whether I should go for it or not not this this application or not so you get supplementary information and this supplementary information you might be having directly you might be directly having it or your friends might give you information your parents might give you information so they might actually say whether you have taken a right decision or wrong decision they might give no, their viewpoint, opinion, so the relatives, friends, elders, teachers, number of this thing, from this thing, you might get supplementary information. So this supplementary information that ultimately is going to present a different type of decisional premise for, let's say, the, 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 the further decision is what is being referred here as feedback. So Simon says, the decision making involves these stages. Intelligence stage, design stage, choice stage, and feedback stage. Simple. All of you understood?
See further, Simon basically has been interested in developing a science of administration. Now Simon has been primarily focusing on developing a science of administration and since Simon believed managing is decision making. So for Simon what is actually administration, what is actually management? Decision making. So that is why he believed that the science of administration can be developed on the basis of the study of decisional premises. So how can you develop a science of administration? Therefore, the Simon, administration is nothing but decision making. So study of decision making or study of administration is the same. A theory of administration is said to Simon that is theory of decision making. So here in this particular context Simon says in order to develop the science of administration one has to study which aspect? Decision premises. Now here in this particular context the Simonian effort to develop science of administration is in sharp contradiction to the classical theory and its effort to build science of administration. So Simon in its effort to build science, science of administration or science, Simonian emphasis on science of administration, it is in a way different from the classical theory and its emphasis on science of administration. Let me explain this aspect. See Simon while developing his uh, science of administration rejected politics administration dichotomy or the classical notion of politics administration dichotomy to replace with fact value dichotomy. This particular theory will be slightly difficult but again we will try our level best to make it as easy as possible. Now this theory is a bit abstract. But till now all of you have understood? Hmm? Okay, let's So here I am saying that Simon in, a, in its uh, effort to develop science of administration rejected the classical politics administration dichotomy and emphasized on fact value dichotomy. Now say on one account he agrees with the classical theorists. The classical theorists believe that the foundation to the scientism is fact. The science can be developed on the basis of fact. So what is going to undermine scientism? Value. So more the value, scientism is going to be undermined because value is what? Variable. It varies. So science involves developing principle. Principle involves prediction, accuracy. So moment something 
that you consider is value. In your study, that is value is going to undermine the scientism. Because if you perceive from this point of view, science is all about developing what? Principles. Principles that is going to accurately explain the relationship between cause and consequence. So now, when you are going to develop principles where definitive cause-consequence relationship is there, moment value enters into your study. Value is what? Constant or variable? Variable. variable. So moment value is penetrating into the study, it is going to undermine scientism. So here, this simonian view on scientism Many, 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 many may not agree. But here, if you take into account Simonian view on scientism and classical theories uh, 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 and their view on scientism, they in fact overlap. Because both, the classical theories also believe what is the basis for scientism? Fact. And so also the uh, Simon believes that fact is the basis for scientism. But if you take into account classical theory, classical theory believed that uh, if you take into account administration, classical theorists believe that administration is separate from politics. Now, administration is separate from politics. And since administration is separate from politics, the nature is different it can be studied separately. But here, while they were trying to actually understand the nature, the classical theories believed politics is a arena that is dealing with what? Negotiation. That's more with negotiation, compromise, dialogue, bargaining, manipulation, pulls and pushes. So in that particular context, it is being, you know, the classical theories considered that politics is more of value. On the other hand, while referring to the administration, they believe administration is more concrete, specific. It relies on logic, technicism, scientism. So since they deal with implementation, they have to deal with scientific tools and techniques. So they are more scientific, more concrete, more specific. So that means they believe administration is fact. So, the classical theorists, those who believed in the politics administration dichotomy, for them, administration is more of fact and politics is that of value. Administration is fact and politics is value. And since administration is fact, they believe that the study of administration from the scientific point of view is very much possible. So, science of administration can be developed on the basis of the study of administration away from politics. This is the view of which group of theorists? Classical. classical. So classical theorists believe science of administration is to be derived on the basis of the study of administration being divorced from politics. politics. Simon did not agree on this point. Simon only agreed on what? Fact is the basis for scientism. But he did not agree on the classical theory and their emphasis on science of a politics administration dichotomy. In fact, Simon believes that 
every administration is what? Again, to begin with, uh, we have already referred that. What is that? Uh, what is administration? Is nothing but decision making. Decision making. Simon says every decision, every decision making, whether at the higher level or at the lower level. So whether at the higher level of the organization, middle level of the organization, or at the lower level of the organization, see at the higher level the decision might be more strategic, more broader, general. The decision at the comparatively lower level might be more tactical, more specific. Like let's say, at the parliamentary level, at the union cabinet level, the decision might be let's say GST. GST as a policy. So that's a very general thing. So moment you go down in the hierarchy and come to the stage of administration or some level of the administration, lower level of the administration, the decision is more not relating to the general principle, rather relating to particular cases. In this case, whether GST is applicable or not, if applicable, which slab is applicable, in this case, then what is the tax liability? So the, if you take into account the higher level, the nature of the decision might be different, lower level, the nature of the decision might be different, at higher level it might be more strategic, more general, lower level it might be more tactical and more specific, but irrespective of that. Irrespective of that, Simon says, every and he is borrowing from whom? Bernard. Bernard has already, most of the things Bernard has already discussed. Simon elaborated it. Simon, based on the Bernard's theory, in fact developed it into a comprehensive theory. So following Bernard, Simon says, every decision or decision making have two premises. That is, value premise and fact premise. So every decision carries two premise, value premise and fact premise. Now see, he has explained, Simon explained this value and fact premise of the decision making by using means and paradigm. So he has explained this premises by using means, M-E-A-N-S, means, hyphen, end, E-N-D, end paradigm. Now, what is this means and end paradigm? He says every decision carries two components. That is the goal component and as is the means component. So every decision that we take, it has inherently within it one goal component. And at the same time, that is a means component. So decisions generally have these two components, the goal and the means. And Simon says that if you take into account the goal, like let's say you decided to become a civil servant, in this the goal is what? You being a civil servant. That's the goal. 
but at the same time there is also a decision how to become a civil servant what all to do in order to become a civil servant that is what is which component means component as a simon would say that see the goal component is more of value so the goal aspect of the decision is not entirely value more of value why it is value because it simply says let's to take into account the goal of the decision making the goal is lying somewhere in the future that is what is preferred and that is not a current situation that's not a current state of affair that is something in the future it is something desired and it might become a reality it may not become a reality you intend to become a civil servant you have decided to become a civil servant so here you are intending you are desiring to become a civil servant so that is somewhere in the future you being a civil servant that is somewhere in the future it's not present so that means simon is saying the goal in fact refers to that value aspect that because goal is referred you know, to basically a preference so preference lies in the future so it being lying in the future it cannot be observed you cannot observe it on the other hand means basically belongs to the present so thereby it can be observed you can observe that is why simon says the means part of the decision making or the means component is more of fact so what is more of value goal is more of value and which is more of fact the means is more of fact and moment as as, as you would say moment that is what is aimed at is realized that is moment you your goal you are able to attain it do you think it uh, any more remains as a goal no more it is a goal so moment the day you become a civil servant do you think is now a goal for you no no more it is you becoming a civil servant ceases to be a goal for you it becomes what a reality for you and see that goal when it in fact is achieved becomes a means for another goal so the day you become a civil servant then the problem starts what card what posting you know what are responsibilities so that becomes a means for what another thing so moment the other goal is achieved it no more remains a goal it becomes what a fact it becomes a means so the goal component has more of value the fact that the means component carries more of fact that means if you try to understand this every administration is nothing but managing that is decision making decision making have two aspects goal aspect and means aspect the goal is more of value means is more of fact so thereby every decision carries both value as well as fact so in that case we can simply say that every administration includes 
both value as well as fact. Do you find a contradiction between classical theory and the Simonian understanding? What is the classical theory saying? Administration is entirely fact. What, what Simon is saying? Administration is both fact as well as value. Because he has come out with this idea from a logical point of view. He is logically trying to actually emphasize that decision making is nothing but managing. Managing is nothing but decision making or administration is nothing but decision making. Because administration involves making choices. Administration involves collecting information, developing alternatives, evaluating alternatives and choosing among these alternatives the course of action to thereby Managing is nothing but decision making. But every decision carries these two components, the end and the means component. And the end component, the goal component is that it have more of value and the means component have more of fact. So thereby, every decision has both value as fact. And since administration is also decision making, and decision making has both value and fact, so thereby administration has both is both fact and value. So here, Simon is differing from classical theories by stating that only a part of the administration is fact, the whole of the administration is not fact. But for classical theory, the whole of the administration is fact. But for Simon, only a part of the administration is fact. So that means, as per the Simon, Simon says, science of administration is to be built on what? Factor value? No. Simon says, science of administration can be developed only on the basis of fact. Scientism is to be located, no, based in fact. This aspect he agrees with the classical theory. But on what he disagree? Classical theory says administration, the whole of the administration is fact. So that is why they believe the science of administration can be developed on the basis of the whole of the administration. Because everything is fact. But Simon says administration is both value and fact. That means only a part of the administration is fact. So considering this, Simon believes science of administration can be developed only on a part of the administration. And which part of the administration? The part of the administration that is fact. That is why Simon being a behavioral theorist is fact-oriented. Why fact-oriented? He says value is present, fact is present. But as far as study is concerned, you should be studying what? Only fact. Because science of administration can be developed on the basis of fact. That means according to Simon, Science of administration or a part of the administration is amenable to scientism, not the whole of the administration as per the understanding of the classical theories.
Let's see if you remember one of the criticism to classical theory. Simon says classical theories and their principles are not scientific. Why? Well, scientism requires close observation and empiricism. It is not based on casual observation and experience. So being a behavioral theorist for developing scientific administration, he emphasizes on empiricism, close observation and which things you can observe with regard to which thing you can go for empirical studies, something that is observable. So empirical studies are possible only with regard to those things those are observable and those are observable are constant fact. And which are not observable? Those are lying in the future. Those are not observable. And what doesn't, what is not observable? Something that is in that, something that is that in the future. And thereby, that is something value. So that is why Simon believed science of administration can be developed on the basis of fact. But why he emphasize if the, 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 the science of administration can be developed on the basis of fact, he also maintained that all of this administration is not amenable to scientism. Whole of the administration is not amenable to scientism. Why Simon says the whole of the administration is not amenable to scientism? Because in the administration there is one part that is value. So that is why he says only one part is fact. So that part which is fact is amenable to scientism. So according to Simon, science of administration can be developed on the basis of the study of a part of the administration, not the whole of the administration. So till this all of you understood this particular So the whole part of administration, is it not predetermined by those policies? See, it is predetermined, it is only a preference. It is only a preference. So that means you desire that. Whether it will be a reality or not, you never know. So today you think I should be a civil servant, tomorrow you think, I will, no, since I have been a qualified doctor, I think this is good for me. Or you might become or may not become because of your performance. So the goal is only something that is desired. So since it is only a desired thing that is lying in the future, something lying in the future you cannot observe. So something that you cannot observe might change. So moment something is observable, there is a reality attached to it. That means there is a finiteness attached to it. So that is what he says, goal thereby includes more of value. Why more of value? Some fact is there. What is the fact? Like let's say you say, I want to become a civil servant. So civil servant is a, there is some fact is there, but you will become a civil servant or not, never know. You know and moment you know, no more your goal. So that is why he says the goal carries more of value, the predominantly value and means is predominantly fact. So like in this case I have the choice to determine my goal and, but like if you look at it from the perspective of politics and administration so administration as an activity it doesn't really re uh, involve determining the goal I'm not exactly getting it but like uh, policies they define the goal for the administration already 
So who defines the goal? Policy. The policy. Okay, policy defines the goal. Administration, like it might involve defining certain sub. That's what. That's true. See, let's say Sarvas Shiksha Abhiyan. Already the goal is defined or not? But do you think uh, the administration was able to achieve that goal? No. Within the time frame that was, there were many mission mode projects. By the 2000, this reducing this 2000, this ready. These are what only aim. In actual practice, whether it will be a reality or not, the time will say. For administration, it remains what only a goal, and that goal might be true, may not be true. So one actual part is what under the policy. This is what you are aiming to. But the rest all is what value. So that is why Simon says the goal component is predominantly value and the means component is predominantly fact. But at least uh, this argument all of you are able to understand. Classical theory says administration is fact and fact is the basis of scientism. If you want to develop science of administration, the science of administration can be like, based on the study of whole of administration. Why? Because whole of administration is fact. Simon says whole of the administration is not fact. Only a part of the administration is fact. So science of administration can be developed on the basis of the study of only a part of the administration, not the whole of the administration. Or otherwise, that Simon would say that the 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 the, the uh, a part of the administration is amenable to scientism, not the whole of the administration is amenable. So this aspect, all of you understood.
He told me, no, I was more anxious there and I was least anxious in Indian courts. And when he was asked, what is the reason why it is so? Because he told, it's always comfortable to face the speaking judges, the judges who are speaking and very much interacting. It's always comfortable and it's very difficult to face judges who are silent. So basically referring if you are interacting with someone and that fellow is poorer with that status of equanimity, then it is actually difficult. So that's why I asked because the facial expression was something like that. Neither I'm happy nor I'm sad. So let me pick up a few other things. See, these are certain things that is dealing with the Simon's concept of decision making. But in Simon's theory of administration, there are certain other explanations as well. Like let's say, if you take into account Simon, Simon also dealt with uh, the issue of human motivation. So let us try to understand his idea on human motivation. That means within the organization. Remember Bernard's idea on human motivation? What did Bernard say? Very good. See here, Simon is drawing heavily from Bernard. So Simon, while dealing with the human motivation within the organization, did agree with Bernard. But at the same time, he supplemented Bernard. He did not reject Bernard. Rather, he supplemented Bernard. What is Bernard's idea? Bernard says, individual motivation within the organization depends on individual's feeling of satisfaction. And that satisfaction is restricted to the contribution satisfaction equilibrium. That is, the individual feeling that whatever the uh, organization is actually giving is more than what the individual is giving towards the organization. Simon agrees with the Bernard that individual's motivation within the organization depends on individual's feeling of being satisfied. But the Simon's no notion of individual satisfaction was different from that of Bernard's. <coughs> so Simon agreed with Bernard that the moment individual feels satisfied, individual is going to be highly motivated and if there is dissatisfaction, then individual is going to be demotivated. But the basis for satisfaction was slightly different from that of Bernard's. Because according to Simon, Simon believed individual within the organization feels motivated provided individuals satisfaction individuals organizational satisfaction goes beyond zero point So individuals, or simply we can say, as Simon is saying, that individual's motivation depends on individual feeling satisfied, or simply as he says, that individual's motivation within the organization depends on the individual's feeling, 
about the satisfaction that the individual derives within the organization that is the organizational satisfaction goes beyond zero point or simply you can write otherwise that individual satisfaction moves beyond zero point whereby zero point is the opportunity cost Now, whereby the zero point is the opportunity cost. Now let me try to elaborate this. You know, with an example, let me elaborate this. See, let's say you are working in an organization, and Bernard is trying to explain your motivation. How Bernard is going to explain your motivation? That Bernard will try to find out your feeling within the organization. How you feel within the organization with regard to the job that you are doing and the the benefits that you are getting from the organization. Bernard will say, if you have a feeling that whatever benefits you are deriving from the organization is much more than whatever contributions you are making towards the organization, you will be motivated because you will feel satisfied. But Simon will say, this is only one aspect because we being, you know, we a, 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 a human being. We have a psychological process, a psychological tendency. What is that? We tend to compare. Not only compare our contribution within the organization with the satisfaction that we are getting from the organization, but we also try to find out because that is an inherent thing. We also try because that is there at the conscious or even at the subconscious because all these things is referring. That this very uh, another feeling is there at the conscious, subconscious, or the unconscious level about what all thing that you are leaving or losing to be here. So, like let's say you become a civil servant. Moment you become a civil servant, see you choosing to become a civil servant and taking up that option. That means automatically you are removed from what some other alternative possibilities. Had you not been the civil servant, you possibly might be doing certain other things. So you have a feeling. The individual have a feeling. Feeling about, had I not been here, I possibly would have been, let's say, A or B or C. And also, see, these are not objective. Exactly, I was here or here or here. Feeling. So something like that is simply saying that individuals within the organization they not only go for a psychological evaluation with regard to their contribution in the job towards the organization and also organizational benefit towards them. They also try to actually take note of what are the opportunities they are losing. And again, quite logically, see the opportunities that you're losing, let's say three opportunities you are losing or four opportunities you are losing. Which opportunity will become 
the point of reference all the four will not be because you can do any one of them so when there is any one of them what becomes the point of reference for you the best out of the four that will become the point of reference let's say if we try to mathematize it though as for these theorists satisfaction cannot be mathematized because they say it's not only monetary it is also non-monetary but let's hypothetically for our understanding let's quantify it for example if it is in the organization as far as this individual is concerned the contribution is 3 and the satisfaction is 4 Bernard will say would be motivated because is in favor of satisfaction but see Simon says this individual is not only going to see this also going to see you see by being in this position I might be losing out with A, B or C but see all these three that individual is not going to consider because in this imaginatively the fellow might find that B is the best option for me because in this my net benefit is let's say 2 net means contribution satisfaction no problem net benefit is plus 2 now here this fellow is always going to compare this with whom the current net benefit what is the current net benefit 1 and moment he feels I am eligible for 2 I am charity feeling you are not worried about my contribution is 3, I am getting 4. That becomes the list of the consideration. That might be one of the considerations, but that remains no more important consideration. What overpowers you? I am capable of more. By being here, possibly I am actually underpaid. So that very feeling, that's what Bernard is saying. That's it. The individual, when gets most Okay, or fully motivated or individual gets motivated only when the individual's current satisfaction or individual satisfaction moves beyond zero point and what is this zero point? Zero point is the opportunity cost. What is opportunity cost? Opportunity cost is the best other alternative foregone. So what you have foregone? ABC. These are the alternative you have foregone. And what is the best alternative in this? B. So, the zero opportunity cost is the best alternative that has been foregone. So, this becomes your zero point. Zero point means base point. Reference point. So, you start comparing with what? This opportunity cost. And when you get motivated, only when you have a feeling my current satisfaction is beyond zero point, more than zero point. <coughs> so only when here the satisfaction is something like let's say six. So here the, the net satisfaction is three and this is more than the zero point two. Otherwise, if you try to understand what Simon is trying to say, Simon is simply saying if you try to use a local, local uh, uh, colloquial casual language Simon is possibly trying to say that individual is motivated within the organization provided the individual has a feeling that the current satisfaction is the best satisfaction the current satisfaction is the best satisfaction you may either say
तो ऐसा नहीं मिलने वाला So here we can be referred that Simon is of the opinion that you know, he did accept Bernard but again he did not fully accept Bernard's theory on motivation. He in fact believed that the individual's motivation depends on the individual's current satisfaction being more than the opportunity cost or otherwise we can simply say the individual becomes motivated within the organization provided individual have a feeling that the current satisfaction is the best satisfaction. Now see, the human motivation or moreover, the human satisfaction within the organization as per Bernard is based on inducements. How many inducements Bernard discussed? Eight, broadly two. But see, for Simon, Simon has referred the basis for motivation through the concept incentives. So Bernard uses the term inducement and Simon uses the term incentive. See as far as the incentives are concerned, he simply said that these incentives influence the individual towards the job. So they put their influence, they put pressure, pressure to uh, on the human being to be driven towards what? The job. So in that particular context he maintains that could be internal incentives or influences, external in incentives or external influences. So influence over the individual in the job towards the job or within the organization towards the job could be internal, could be external. So there could be internal influence that could be external influence or internal incentives and external incentives. See as far as the internal influence is concerned, this is something influence from within. The influence from within. And here Simon agrees that influence from within, that means individual on its own is very much committed towards the job. That is something if you remember his idea, Bernard's idea of Joan of interference. Something closer to that. So he's saying that the individuals from within are driven towards the job. So that would require individual's loyalty or commitment towards the organization and the goal. So when the individual should be very much committed internally towards the job, that will provide the motivation only when they are loyal towards the organization 
loyal towards the supervisors, loyal towards the organizational goal. And here, Simon replaces the Bernard's concept of zone of indifference with the notion and the zone <coughs> of acceptance. <coughs> So what is that is saying? That as far as the individual is saying that people should be loyal. To the extent they are loyal, they will be driven towards the job. So that is something internal influence is there. People can be driven towards the job from within. And when they are driven towards the job from within, when they are very loyal. Loyal towards the organization, loyal towards the supervisor, loyal towards the organizational purpose. And see this particular aspect has been captured by Bernard through his concept of zone of indifference and Simon has captured this through his concept of zone of acceptance. Same concept but he has given a more, uh, what to say, acceptable term. Bernard's idea appears to be zone of indifference, something inchoate. So the same he has introduced through his concept zone of acceptance. <coughs> Is referring to that obedience, that loyalty. But simultaneously agrees with Bernard that this zone of acceptance can be increased. That means people can become more loyal, more committed by working on various incentives or influences. which is monetary and non-monetary influences are there. So while actually working on these monetary and non-monetary influences, one can actually increase an individual's loyalty or increase the zone of acceptance and decrease the zone of denial. And simultaneously, he did also discuss external influences like training, communication, leadership. The training, communication, leadership, all, all these are which type of influences? External. So through training you can also make people more and more, more motivated. If they are trained well, they can handle the job well. They increase in skill and also they introduce into the right type of mindset. So for them the job becomes easy, so they become motivated. Through communication, right type of information, right type of encouragement that also brings about motivation. Leadership, right type of leadership also brings about motivation. So all these are which type of influences? External influences. Okay? So this is what is idea of motivation, human motivation. All of you understood this? There are a few more aspects are there, but in certain other context we will be bringing it. He has also dealt with something called displacement of goal. Now some of the concepts are there. 
but in later stage we will be bringing in those ideas. So this is what is the Simon's theory on decision making, Simon's theory on administration. All of you understood? Yes. Any question I before I proceed? Okay, so that means I am ready to proceed. Or if you have started reading the criticisms, please read the criticisms. In few classes from now, we will raise those criticisms, we will discuss those criticisms. But before that, I want all of you to go through the criticisms. Okay? And mark the criticism that you have failed to understand. So that uh, you, know, you are able to raise it and you know, every criticism you have here. Okay, so now let's move into another theorist. So today we'll be taking up uh, a bit unconventional theorist who conventionally not considered as a management theorist. That is Karl Marx and his theory of bureaucracy. And not only we will discuss Karl Marx and his theory of bureaucracy, we'll also discuss Marxist theory of bureaucracy. Are you able to differentiate the between the two? You, you become a very big philosopher. So your philosophy will go by whose name? Your name. But there are many who might agree to your major foundational principles and based on those foundational principles they develop their theory. So they will be known by what? Also your name, but that will be a slight difference. You are you and they are like you. So that is why Karl Marx and Marx, Karl Marx's theory of bureaucracy but at the same time we will also deal with the Marxist theory of Bureaucracy. There are a number of theories who are actually Marxist because they followed the philosophical tradition that Karl Marx has introduced. Karl Marx introduced something called conflict tradition, and there are many other theorists who followed this conflict tradition and has you know, developed their theory of administration of bureaucracy. So that those theories, Lenin's theory on bureaucracy, Stalin's theory of bureaucracy. Mao's theory on bureaucracy or Darendra's theory of bureaucracy or Bollinger's theory of bureaucracy all this theory of bureaucracy will be captured under what? Marxist theory of bureaucracy Karl Marx and his theory will be Karl Marx's theory of bureaucracy Okay, bacho? There have been also incidentally a couple of my students by the name Karl Marx. 
Yes. Do you know his basic theory? Because Karl Marx has been voted as the most powerful philosopher of this 20th century. Not 21st, the 21st has just begun. And even with that, no, he has been voted as the most powerful philosopher, even at the heart of capitalist, capitalism. That means European countries and all this. He's the only theorist with the power of his philosophy divided the entire world in terms of both study as well as in practice into two. Communist, capitalist. So in study, simply in terms of the study, Marxist, capitalist or liberal. Or in terms of practice, countries in terms of their, let's say, economic policy, political philosophy, or administrative practices, they were divided on the basis of being communist countries and capitalist countries or liberal countries. Such has been the aura of significance, influence of this particular philosopher. See, our interest would be to understand his theory of bureaucracy. But we will not be able to understand his theory of bureaucracy unless we understand the Karl Marx and his theory itself. So, the first part, I will try to briefly present his theory, Marxism. So, that part you don't write. Because unless until we understand that part, it will be impossible, next to impossible to understand his theory of bureaucracy. We also have to understand, very interestingly, that Marx has taken a very, very negative view of bureaucracy. So that is a saying, if you take into account some of the theorists, like let's say Hegel, no, there is a theorist named Hegel. Marx and Max, whoever. See, Hegel developed certain ideas relating to state, government, and administration. Marx followed Hegel. Followed means in terms of time. Though there have been some influences. And when Marx actually developed this theory, he has been referring to Hegel's uh, let's say ideas. And while regularly referring to the Hegel's idea, he presented a you know, completely contradictory theory. That is why it is said that Marx was having a running, a running dialogue with the ghost of Hegel. It was why he was trying to write and present and develop his theory. Develop his theory. He, was, uh, he was interacting with whom? Hegel and his theory. So that's why many times referred, Marx was having a running dialogue with the ghost of Hegel. At the same time it is referred that Karl Marx put Hegel upside down. Or is referred, Karl Marx made Hegel to stand on his head. Simply all these statements means what? The first statement means that while Karl Marx was developing his theory, was continuously referring to Hegel's theory. He was very much well versed, you know, well versed with theory. He, he he referred to his theory. He was considering his theory while developing his theory, whether he agreed or not. But again, that goes. That means the presence of Hegel in his theory was very much visible. But the second part says the presence is visible in a different way. 
See, like let's say the government and the opposition. If you take it from government, the ghost of opposition is always present. But in which way? Always in a critical way. With the opposition, the ghost of government is always there. So by looking into the opposition, by going through their lectures, by looking uh, or going through their, let's say, speeches and all these things, always you can understand, okay, that is something government, that is this individual or that individual. So you'll find that reference to this thing is always there, but that is there in a negative way. Something like that. The first statement is saying that the moment you take into account Karl Marx theory, Hegel will be ever present. <coughs> the second statement says Karl Marx developed a theory whereby he contradicted Hegel. So that is what is putting Hegel upside down or making Hegel stand on his head. And at the same time, Max Weber came later to Karl Marx. And Max Weber, in his theory, in theory of Max Weber, the presence of Karl Marx was very much visible. And that is why it is referred, Max Weber was having a running dialogue with the host of Marx. And at the same time, he contradicted Karl Marx. And that is the same reason why it is being referred, Max Weber made Karl Marx to stand on his head. Or Max Weber put Karl Marx upside down. Are you able to understand these statements? Because here, Hegel took a positive view of the state, government and administration. So since Marx did not agree, contradicted, he took which view? A very negative view, a gloomy view. And Weber, he contradicted Marx. Weber has taken which view? Positive view. But see, what is this negative view that Marx has taken? What is the root for this? What is his argument? But Marx theory is basically considered as a scientific theory. His theory is considered as a scientific socialistic theory. That means his arguments are very logical. One of the very convincing theory has been that of Marx or Karl Marx theory. So before we understand his theory on bureaucracy and his arguments relating to bureaucracy in which he simply we can say he has made, he has made a villain out of bureaucracy. We need to first of all understand the Karl Marx theory relating to society or simply the Marxism. See this part as I told, don't write, simply hear and try to understand. See Marx basically has been an evolutionary theorist. Evolutionary theorist means in his theory, <clears throat> he has developed this theory or when he is dealing with the contemporary state, contemporary society, contemporary economy, he is trying to actually deal with the contemporary economy from which perspective? From an evolutionary or historical perspective. Now see here, Marx has been uh, a materialist. Basically, see, he has been very much influenced by theorists like Feuerbach and Hegel. When you refer to Feuerbach, I'm not writing the meaning because you don't require the spelling because you don't require this, so don't write it. If you refer to Feuerbach, Feuerbach is essentially a materialist. By materialist means, Feuerbach believed matter is primary 
idea is secondary. That means the idea flows out of the matter. But this is not agreed by Hegel. Hegel is an idealist. So being idealist for Hegel, idea is primary, matter is secondary. That means matter flows out of ideas. To generalize and make it easy for you, let me give you a very simplistic or pedestrian example. Like let's say, if you take into account, for example, it's a fact. Well, that is the idea behind this fan or not? That's what is driving the leaf, rotating and uh, in fact giving air. So, Feuerbach will say, hey, no, it is not the matter that is actually giving rise to the idea behind this fan. Sorry, the Feuerbach will say, no, it's not the idea of fan that has given rise to this fan. Rather, he will simply say, some part in the history, maybe, maybe, for example, so there are big leaves of the tree and they swung. When they swung, maybe there was flow of air and this material thing gave rise to an idea that okay, under such situation there can be a flow of air. So it is not the idea that has given rise to this material manifestation, it is the matter that has, give, give, that has given rise to certain ideas. So primarily, initially it is, the base is actually matter and the subsequent is idea. Hegel contradicts it. Hegel says no, the idea has given rise to this material manifestation. So first the idea, somebody has thought, okay this could be done and based on that the material things has come up. Something like let's say if you try to understand poor and poverty, Hegel will say poor are poor because of poor ideas. So their material condition of poverty is because of what? Their poverty in ideas. Feuerbach will say no, their poor ideas are primarily because of their poor condition. So that material condition of poverty has contributed towards them, uh, towards them having poor ideas. So whatever that might be, Marx was convinced with the Feuerbach. Feuerbach. He was convinced with Feuerbach. So thereby Marx is basically a materialist. He is a materialist. But at the same time, on one account, he agreed with Hegel. Hegel's concept of change. Hegel believed that change basically is a byproduct of contradiction. If there is no contradiction, there will be no change. So when change happens, only when there is contradiction. Like let's say, when you started your preparation, you might actually draw a chart. Monday, Tuesday, revision, all this thing you prepare or not? But do you think that remains the same for till the end of your preparation? No. You keep on revising or not? And when do you revise? Only when you find a contradiction. So the similar way in every aspect of human life, every aspect of human society, everything in the nature, but Marx was convinced with the Hegel's argument that the contradiction is the thing that actually brings about the change. Moment there is no contradiction, change will cease. There will be no change. So in this, 
Hegel, in fact, actually was saying that the change is a reality and change basically happens because of contradiction and this is what the this Hegelian idea was accepted by the Marx. The idea that thesis, antithesis, synthesis, that contradiction is presented through the idea thesis. That means the original idea, contradiction to this would result lead towards a new idea that is antithesis. Contradiction to this will result towards maybe the combination of both synthesis. Contradiction with this will result towards the another change. When the contradiction happens, it itself will become a thesis to a new antithesis and it goes on. So this idea has been accepted by Simon. That contradiction is the basis for change. But see, if you take into account Marx, Marx said that human society to begin with was primitive communism. So the first society, the human society basically when formal, official or general civilized society has not started, the, 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 that stage he referred to as primitive communism. Primitive society, primitive communism. In primitive communism, everybody was equal. Why everybody was equal? Because everybody was the owner of the means of production. The means of production means those tools, techniques or instrumentalities through which the production is made possible that is essential for survival. So at that point of time in primitive communism, at that point of time how individual was able to sustain itself through fruits through let's say the, 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 the flesh of wild animals or the other animals. So the human being that was the product, that was the, what the individual wanted at that point of time and how individual able to get that? Was it going for some, you know, some mechanized things and all these things? No, simple stone, stake, some of these things. And who was having the skill of making these tools or using these tools? every human being. So every human being was the owner of the means of production. Since every human being was the owner of the means of production, that means they enjoyed the similar relation with the means of production or the instruments of production, thereby they belong to the same status. So everyone having the same relation with the instruments of production belong to the same category. So they had the same status. So they were equal. So in primitive communism, there was no hierarchy, no status, no class, no caste, nothing of this. So there was nothing but superior, nothing but subordinate. Everybody was equal. So since everyone was equal, society was devoid of contradiction. So since devoid of contradiction, there was no exploitation, no oppression. There was no comparatively, these things were not there. But he maintained that in some part of time, because of the human capacity to think, analyze, because we are reasonable beings. So being reasonable, we have the capacity to think. We have the capacity to analyze. So because of this, in the due course of time, we invented the art of agriculture. So the moment we invented the art of agriculture, what happened? We tend to 
but people tend to take to agriculture so not all took to agriculture the few who take to agriculture they are able to produce more more than sustenance till now i was plucking let's say fruit as per my requirement i wanted to eat i can eat three i pluck three eight that's all but with the agriculture what became possible i was able to produce more than what i required so thus giving rise to what marx says private property so that means this gave rise to one category of people who are owner or have they have private property and there are others who do not have private property and this is the beginning of the contradiction and this is the beginning of the change in the human society and so karl marx says that this primitive communism changed with this towards ancient society <coughs> So in ancient society, there were two classes, predominantly two classes. One is have, another is have not. Why this class came up? Because now there is a differential relationship with the means of production. One category is the owner of that means of production, and other is the non-owner. So thereby, those who are owner are haves, and those who are non-owner. they have not so owner those have that dominant and those that have not they dominated so in ancient society there are haves there are have nots and in ancient society this have and have nots are basically refers to as master and the slave so the masters are there and slaves are there but see an important aspect marx says here You see, if you take into account this, those who are dominant, their interest lies in what? Domination. So their interest lies in maintaining and perpetuating domination. So they would like moment I am dominant, I would like I to, to, to remain dominant. So that means the dominant always try to protect and perpetuate domination. But in order to protect and perpetuate the domination, the dominant used both. the muscle as well as the mind so yeah if i have to dominate i have to use not only my muscle but also i have to dominate through mind so both muscle and mind was used so basically here as marx says the material condition of have and have not gave rise to the other institutions of the society so what is the primary basis what is the initial reality the initial reality is the economy few people becoming economically dominant and few people becoming economically less dominated so the initial reality of the human society is the economy but this reality economy that was actually dominated that of dominant and the dominated gave rise to other institutions because why with that relationship required because that relationship requires certain things so as a result of which out of the requirement of that relationship other institutions emerged so other institutions other institutions like let's say muscle institutions coercive institutions state military or police all these are which institutions coercive but as the dominant dominated not only through muscle but also but also through mind because if you capture mind 
if you actually manipulate the mind your domination will be more more easier more effective so education spiritualism art literature painting drama entertainment sports religion all these things marx says all these things actually developed all these things developed where what is the seed what is the root economy economy is the root the material condition is the root out of this material condition all these things emerged so basically he's saying that's it if you take into account this society this society was an inequal society and similarly also when it translated into the feudal society there was some contradiction here because of which it translated it transformed into feudal society what is that you do not understand but to meet your curiosity you let me repeatedly refer to that simply say that's it at this point of time because see we have that cerebral capacity so gradually what happened there was some new halves energetic halves entrepreneurial halves so this new halves they started contradicting they they they, they, they started com- coming in contradiction with what old halves so the tussle between the new half and the old half not have not resulted into the new society feudal so here that is have and have not that is lords and serfs lords and serfs your master and the slave and similarly here the old half that is the lord and the new half that is the industrialist because by now the steam engine and all this thing came up so few took to industrialization so the industrialist they became a, a, a new type of half so the contradiction between the old and the new half gave rise to something called capitalistic society in capitalist society two major class referred by karl marx are this you have to remember because many times these terms are used this particular term bourgeois and proletariat bourgeois bourgeoisie is ie बुर्जुआजी में जे आई मतलब इंडस्ट्रियल ओनर्स प्रोलेटेरियट आर दंडस्ट्रियल वर्कर्स सो मेनी टाइम वाइट रेफर टू द टर्म प्रोलेटारियाजेशन what is that proletarianization something like impoverization so here the have and have not are bourgeois and proletarian but one more aspect a few more aspect here we'll try to understand simon is saying uh, sorry the karl marx is saying that everything in the society is basically the derivative of the economy so economy is the substructure or the infrastructure and everything else is a superstructure 
state is a superstructure religion is a superstructure this education is a superstructure sports is a superstructure entertainment is a superstructure everything is a superstructure so this is primarily derived from economy so the character of the economy is ultimately going to influence and define the character of rest all so since economy is exploitative oppressive so the education will be exploited or oppressed since the economy advances the interest of one that is have the education will advance the interest of only the have so so similarly art literature religion everything they will be reflecting what character the same character that of the economy let me give you few examples to make you understand what marx is saying more clearly so let me pick up from the indian context i think that earlier i have given a slight reference i've already given if you take it out in india so we have caste system you know basically the caste is the local manifestation of what is otherwise referred to as varna system so how many varnas are there four varnas outside the varna is the untouchables the local manifestation of this varna is the caste now varna system has been traditionally associated with the division of work and this varna system is based on certain principle the principle of karma dharma maya and moksha this is what sustains the varna system it has been referred that if you take into account the various varna and their local manifestation caste we will find that this work division is something unjustified because the higher caste they will given more respectful job more dignified job and more paying jobs and on the other hand if you take into account lower caste the lower caste have been assigned with less dignified menial and very less paying jobs lowly paying jobs and in that particular context see this unjustified system is sustained through certain justification certain value system what is that value system that see all of us are basically a part of that cosmic cycle lonely energies and we all are energies we are part of that cosmic cycle and see we will be able to escape this cosmic cycle provided we do what we are expected to or required to do so only when we are dutiful then only will be able to escape from this cosmic cycle and will be able to get what is being referred to as moksha so under the 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 it is not only restricted to the hindu religion as this theorist would say they say across the religion in the indian context the the spiritual basis is that ultimate goal is to attain moksha in order to moksha you have to actually pursue your duty the duty is the karma the karma is defined under every caste so that means you being a member of a particular caste you have to do what that caste prescriptions are so those are your karma and if you actually do what the caste prescriptions are then you are actually dharmic that means by 
following your karma you become dharmic so dharma is to follow karma and see only when you are dharmic you will be able to escape this mayabi world to attain moksha so this is a religious and spiritual sanction behind what a caste system which is an unjustified system whereby there is an exploitation of few over others it is been justified it is been stated so by the marxist by stating that if you try to take note of this caste system you will find the upper caste are landed caste and the <coughs> the lower caste are mostly landless or they have very less land only that means they are trying to say you see originally who are actually the dominant the upper caste they are the actually dominant by virtue of their economic might and in order to protect and perpetuate their economic might they in fact converted that very dominance into a spiritual and religious arrangement through the caste system so that dominance in economy was in fact protected and perpetuated by an institution that was deliberately created to protect the same so thereby these institution will reflect which character the character of that is that of the economy similarly like let's say if you take into account religion if you take into account in marxist marxist countries communist countries is there any religion no there is no religion why there is no religion because see as marx says religion is the heart of the heartless is the soul of the soulless is the opiate of the masses simply trying to say religion itself is an institution not created by the government the god rather is an institution deliberately created by the dominant of the human being so a category of human being who had the vested interest they deliberately created this particular institution what we refer to as religion to satisfy their interest to protect and perpetuate their interest it is nothing godly it is nothing divine so there is nothing divinity in religion in fact religion plays the role of a opium you know opium opium pata hai ki nahi kaise lagta hai okay let me replace that alcohol you know alcohol to pata hai na wo kaise lagta hai ha nasha kar कन्वेंशनल गेस्ट ऑफ स्वीटनेस और समथिंग लाइक दैट इट इज सावर और बेटर और बट अगेन मोस्टली टेस्ट गुड but if you take into account let me give you an example please say if you take into account people who are daily wage laborers rickshaw pullers come let's say summer or winter they do a really hard work or not yes it's a very very hard work they earn very little we also haggle with them maybe 20 people so they earn very little and see that money is so important so valuable for their children for nutrition for studies for growth but see at the end of the day 
they will reach out to take up and you'll find a long line there and you see you dare go there and uh, ask a particular rickshawala you see free of cost i'm going to give you a glass of juice don't drink this one don't drink the wine or alcohol i'm going to give you a glass of juice do you think that's going to prefer this glass of juice as compared to that of the alcohol no and see many simply we say that many who take to alcohol for them it is very important you will find the individual who chooses alcohol has almost few justification few justification in favor not against few justification is that i don't drink unless i'm happy or i don't drink unless i'm sad but i don't drink unless i'm actually bored that means simply saying these are actually something i'm deriving from a marxist book no that's why it's not my ingenuity to remember so basically if you take to this you will find that the people who take to alcohol it works in a particular way what is that it creates illusion it creates illusion that means it distorts the reality so for the individual under the influence of alcohol or the opium or certain drugs for that individual the reality is distorted the reality is displaced like that rickshawala having done such a hard work taking that alcohol after taking that alcohol what is the feeling ki kon modi because the reality is completely distorted and see reality being distorted that means the power of action is gone the power of wisdom is gone and power of action is gone power of wisdom is that is ability to decide what is right and wrong that is gone and the moment the power of wisdom is gone the power of action is gone so marxists are saying the religion is the opium of who not the rich religion is the opium for masses but it is the soul of the soulless it's the heart of the heartless basically it is an instrument of the dominant basically it is an instrument of priesthood or instrument of those who are at the other side but it acts as a something an instrument of subjugation exploitation against whom the poor or the masses because he says the opium of the masses that means for poor religion is nothing but creating illusion so by creating illusion it is taking away the power to decide what is right and wrong and thereby it is taking away their power to act against wrong or in favor of right like something religion says that everything is what maya sab kuch maya paisa kya hai haath ka maya hai and who uses this language most do you think the rich uses uses this language the most is a poor is a poor who uses this language the most rich never rich knows that paisa haath ka maya nahi hai but those who do not have money they take to this particular argument paisa haath ka maya hai so basically they say that see whenever there is an injustice the poor in fact actually takes to religion because in religion the very precept is if you are actually exploiting you will be going to hell 
and if you do not exploit you go to heaven now in that particular context the poor is already already weak and when faced with exploitation he faces a what you can say uh, something like a shelter what is that shelter we say i am already weak so once i am weak my capacity to react is already less so moment i am subjected to let's say a pain moment i get an escape route i don't react i take that escape route and what is the escape route here religion ki farishta aayenge tumhe dekhenge god is there god sees everything and you are going to be penalized so that means see religion for the masses acts as what a safety valve in favor of the bourgeois or the dominant because the dominant because of the religion can keep on exploiting the poor can perpetuate its exploitation and the poor because of the religion loses the sight of what is right and wrong and ultimately loses the sight of action so that means religion ultimately becomes an instrument in the hand of the bourgeois to avoid revolution avoid reaction avoid violence against it so that basically if you take into account these arguments these arguments are simply saying what that all that we see all around us all these institutions all this what you say things right from politics to economy not economy politics religion art literature everything is nothing but a derivative of economy and since the derivative of economy it carries the character of economy in every stage whether it's ancient society feudal society capitalist society in every stage whatever the institutions are there whatever the institutions came up all these institutions are indicating towards what the realities of economy they are all are derivatives of economy they are all superstructure that has been built over the substructure that is economy now before we go to that one more aspect another aspect let me explain see kalmak says that for all the stages this here is comparative equality because of the 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 the, the agriculture this contradiction came up and started changing he says in this stages exploitation is there but capitalist society is the highest stage of exploitation the capitalism for marx is the highest stage of exploitation and marx says capitalism carries its own seeds of destruction so the capitalism is going to be destroyed and how it is going to be destroyed by its own because it carries within it its own seeds of destruction what is that he says that in capitalism there might be few classes so not only two there might be more than two classes but ultimately there will be polarization so the nature of the capitalism will result into polarization polarization into two classes one is the bourgeois other is proletariat one is half another is half not now see this polarization will also lead towards it within that polarization there is also a condition of homogenization homogenization means people who are belonging to a particular category they will be appearing same in their various conditions 
So they would be very much similar to each other. But see, that is one significant change that is going to take place in the capitalism that was absent in feudal or ancient society. That is, as Marx says, that we are changing class for itself towards, sorry, class in itself towards class for itself. So Marx is saying in capitalism that is going to be a fundamental, a very important change, a very significant change. What is that change? The change in the class in itself towards class for itself. What does this mean? Let me elaborate. He says if you take into account feudal ancient society, see in ancient society this servant was working master's place. So every servant who materially belong to the same condition, thereby belong to the same class, but they lived what? Separately, they worked separately, so they did not have much of interaction among themselves. One servant with another servant, they did not have much of the interaction. The interaction mostly was between what? Servant and the master. And if you take into account the ancient society, the serfs, they started working in the fields of the Lord. So they were also, they were staying with the Lord, they worked in the Lord's field and all these things. So here also, they all the serfs, they belong to the same condition, belong to the same category, but they did not know that we all are having the same conditions here category, they are all separate. But in capitalism, things are going to change. Marx said, in capitalism, what is the mode of production? Industry. Industrial industries are the mode of production. Industrial production is the mode of production. So in industrial production, what will happen? The industrial workers will live together in slums. So no more they live in the house of master or the, the industrial owner. They will live where? They will live in slums. And they will commute to the industry through public transport. So that means they will commute together. And they will work also together because in industries they will come together and work together. The coming together of these slums will increase their interaction and this interaction will make them aware that all of them belong to the same category, their condition is the same and they have a common enemy. So what is the difference? Till now they were the same but they did not know they were same. But in capitalism what will happen? That will be an awareness that they were the same, they are the same. So class in itself, that means they are the same class. But they were not aware, will be converted into class for itself. Now they will become aware. And moment they will become aware, moment there is a class for itself, that will give rise to something called violent revolution. So moment they are aware, Achha, I am this because of this fellow. These are the fellow who are doing this. So they will be able to understand their material condition. So moment they will be able to understand their material condition, they are going to revolt. So who are going to revolt? Proletariat. So for the first time, as Marx says, in all other cases, the minority versus minority giving rise to change. For the first time in capitalism, what will happen? Majority will confront minority. 
Majority will fight minority. So who is going to win? Majority. So proletariat is going to win and with this win lies the destruction of private property. A few things you understand. This is Marxism. We are about to no, we are not yet entered into his theory of bureaucracy, but these things are important because frequently we will be referring to these things. So what is that uh, Marx is saying? In the victory of proletariat lies the destruction of private property. Why? Because see, what is the base of exploitation? Inequality. Inequality is the basis for exploitation, operation. From there, with the moment inequality, interest differ, interest differ, people started skimming, arranging, doing, dominating, bidding, all these things. So the inequality needs to go. And what is the basis for inequality? Private property. So moment proletariat will win. So that will be a next stage. That stage has been referred by Marx as dictatorship of proletariat. Dictatorship of proletariat. This will be a stage stage when the rule, the traditional, the conventional ruling class has been deposed, the industrialists have been deposed, private property has been destroyed. Nobody will have any private property. Nobody will have its private property. So if their private property, any property is there, it will be owned by the state. But the state is now controlled by who? Proletariat. Proletariat will take control of the state and private property will be dismantled and that will be that of the state. State will be the owner of the means of production. No individual will become the owner of production. No community, no groups will become the, no, no group will become the owner of production. No, no individual will be the owner of production. Only the state is the owner of the means of production. But see, they also realize another thing. Marx realized another thing. If private property maybe has been the basic cause of inequality but henceforth may not remain the only cause of inequality. So what has become the primary cause and the basic cause of inequality? Private property but Marx realized it no more might remain the only cause of inequality. Henceforth it may not be the only cause of inequality as he says those who control the power of the state will become the new class. <coughs> the state itself has a lot of power. So those who are in charge of the state, so they will gradually become what? The new unequal. So that means the state, state power can be the basis for inequality. So Marx believed in order to attain a society which is free from exploitation, free from operation, one need to attain equality and in order to attain equality, destruction of private property is only one stage, is only partial. So what also need to be done? Destruction of state or dismantling of the state. So that is why Marx believed that dictatorship of proletariat it is only a transitional period. It is at the same time a preparatory period. This dictatorship of proletariat is what is referred to as socialism. This here, who is the owner of the private property? Everything is owned by 
state. And people are actually in control of the state. And here it is governed on the principle each according to its capacity to each according to its need. That is, whatever my capacity I will contribute, but I will get as per my need. Because if I get more than my need, what will come? Start growing. Private property. If I need five, I will get five. If I can contribute four, I will contribute four. Another can contribute ten, but the need is two, will get two. The moment you give more than what is need, private property will come up. But at the same time, state is there and state can create a new unequal. So that is why this is a preparatory ground to finally create what? A stateless society. It's only a temporary period, a transitional period. So in this transitional period, the necessary preparation will be done to finally enter into the state that is referred to as communism. So communism is which state? State is stateless society. But there is no state, no private property, no state. State. Then who is going to own the means of production? Community. Everybody is the owner. Each one is the owner of means of production. So when each one is the owner of means of production, everyone having the same relation with the means of production. So when everyone have the same relation with the means of production, how many categories are there? Only one category. So when there is only one category, there is no inequality. That is equality. When there is no inequality, there is no contradiction. If there is no contradiction, there will be no change. Well, what is the basis for change? Contradiction. For Simon, for Karl Marx, when there is no contradiction and that will happen in communism, there will be no change. Then what is going to be the final stage in history? Communism. If the final stage in evolution of human history, that is communism, that is why he refers communism as the end of history. End of history, finality. That the final stage in the evolution. So history will come to an end. History will cease with communism. That is why later on, with the disintegration of Soviet Russia and all this, say theorist called an American with Japanese origin, Francis Fukuyama. He came out with a book, End of History and the Last Man, basically highlighting the triumph of capitalism. In another topic, we will discuss that. But this concept you know because this concept frequently, in one or other way, we are going to refer. All this you are able to understand? Hmm? Marxist concept of substructure, superstructure, hmm? the idea of inequity being basis for, let's say, this exploitation operation, or the concept of dictatorship, proletariat, hmm? or the idea of communism, the idea of stateless society. Now, all these things you understood? Good. So, this is basically the the Karl Marx basic theory. In brief, I introduced huge theory. But in brief, I introduced all of it to Karl Marx. No, political theory, uh, his sociological theory. Take it. With regard to this, anyone having any doubt? Right?
So based on this, tomorrow we will discuss Karl Marx's theory on bureaucracy and also we will pick up uh, a few Marxist theory on bureaucracy. Thank you.